Hello from Inspire Legal at New York Law School in New York City, New York. I'm Lawrence Coletti. I'm Dan Rodriguez. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. We're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road today. We are still at New York Law School in New York City, New York. Obviously, uh, lots of New York there, but uh, I have someone from Chicago joining me, and that would be Dean Daniel B. Rodriguez. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here, Lawrence. Excellent. Excellent. I know you've been traveling around and uh, on your sabbatical and doing a lot of legal tech uh, commentary and exploration and research. And so I've been following you on Twitter, but uh, thank you so much for coming over. Uh, you were at a, and they call it the Unpanel here at Inspire Legal, and it was titled, Who is Going to Pay for the Training of the Next Generation of Lawyers? Sure. Well, I had never heard of Unpanel until I was invited earlier this week. And and just to clear up the mystery, it's basically a way to uh, interact much more with the audience. So rather than just hear a bunch of talking heads, we we gave our sort of two-minute spiel, and then we really engaged in a, in a wonderful dialogue over the next hour that passed quickly uh, with, uh, with folks in the audience. Very diverse group of folks, I should add. We were joined at this conference and at our panel with some legal educators, handful of deans, uh, prominent folks in law firms, big and, and not so big. Uh, legal tech, opinion leaders, and even some law students were there in the room. That's excellent. So now what uh, some of our listeners may not know is that you're the former dean of Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. So obviously you have a lot of insight into the law school element of that. So uh, you and I did a little pregame. We talked about some of the the blame game that goes on. And is yeah. that, what do you mean by the blame game? Well, I mean by the blame game, and I don't mean this in a, in a 100% critical critical way, although it sounds like it. You get folks from from different walks of legal life and where, where you're asking hard questions and who's paying for the training of, of uh, the next generation of lawyers is a hard question. So there's a tendency to say, you know, if law schools could fix this, don't charge as much. Law firms could fix this, uh, invest more in training. Legal tech could fix it by coming up with the, you know, with the next great app. And next thing you know, it's it often devolves into, you know, you guys are the source of the source of the problem. So to some extent, frankly, our, our unpanel started out along that way. But I think in part because of the constructive dialogue that we were all engaged in, we're all in this together. What flipped was from a blame game to really a, an appeal to collaboration and understanding that any significant progress to make in terms of the financial and economic structure of, uh, of education of lawyers, and I don't just mean in the three years of law school, I mean after that, and any significant changes in the business model uh, is all hands on deck, requires some significant uh, outside the box thinking about how we can really innovate in this space. Well, so monthly, I write a check uh, for the, uh, my education, and so I'm reminded uh, on a monthly basis the value of my legal education. But uh, you know, in terms of the who is going to pay for, so what does that include? I mean, are we talking about like are we talking about moving that on to more of the student? Are we talking about moving that more into the school or sure. the lender? I mean, those are the the only three organizations that are really paying for law school right now. So I started out in my sort of quick rapid fire presentation in chief and saying, it's not a relay race. The objective should not be to think about who's paying for the three years of law school. The answer to that is quite frankly, as you, as you well know, and I know the students with the assistance of law schools and the occasional subvention by folks on the outside. And then the question of who's paying for the rest of legal training over the course of a career is not the law schools. Instead of thinking about it as a, re, a relay race, we, th- we should think about it as law school for life, as a collaborative endeavor between and among law schools and the profession so that we're all in the business of helping train and educate students over the course of their careers. And we make an economic investment 
from the time they start in law school well deep into their careers to make sure that, we, uh, that we're adequately assisting them. And by doing so, taking responsibility and ownership for their success in uh, across the legal profession. So the money is a word, not to get too crude about it, but we're talking about money and economics here, uh, goes in both ways. Law schools make a, a resource investment in their graduates' well-being over the course of a long period of time, and law firms and legal organizations, those who are engaging and, and helping educate the talent, as it were, are also making an investment in the students' well-being and also collaborating and making an investment in law schools. What were some of the, the big, bright ideas that came out of your discussion together? So a little randomly, uh, one of our uh, conferees, Nicole Braddock, who I'm sure is known to, to your listeners, a, a real yes, uh, influential is. thought leader in legal technology, said, talking about the law school curriculum, we sort of, uh, uh, now with law tech being all the rage, we move from you know, old school foundational training of the sort that you know, we, we've long done in law schools to the sexy form of training, skipping over the basics that are important in any walk of life business knowledge, how to read a PL statement, how to engage in, in, in soft leadership skills, all of that. So you and I and our listeners, I suspect, are a self-selected group of fans of law tech and legal innovation, and that's great. Uh, it's where our commitments are. But we shouldn't forget that our objective in law school and as legal educators is to give the students the foundational knowledge and modern knowledge to enable them to prosper. So building the next great app, God bless them if they can do that while in law school, but that's not our principal and overall objective. Another quick point, if I may, that, that, I, that came up uh, among a number of us in this unpanel, as it were, was the importance of regulatory reform. We don't have the opportunity in American legal education for natural experiments, as, as scientists would call them. We can't compare a different model. We can't compare, for example, a law school that has a two-year training program or an undergraduate legal model or has a three-year uh, externship and all of these because the ABA regulatory uh, rules governing law schools basically compels what is more or less a one-size-fits-all. Until we have significant regulatory reform that permits and incentivize law schools to experiment, we won't know the kinds of models that will successfully uh, work. We need that kind of experimentation. We have a show on our network, the ABA Law Students Podcast, and one of the reoccurring themes is the cost, just the raw cost of education. And so often there's a discussion about how to finance that. Uh, obviously, students, recent, well, recent grads are very concerned with just the, the, the growing number that is your student loan debt when you come out. And it's climbing. And it definitely, when I, even when I was in school, it was climbing uh, above uh, the cost of living increases. And so eventually get to a point where people begin to wonder what is the ROI on education. So I just, We're at that point now. Right. And so uh, in the panel, did, did anybody come up with ideas of how to lower that cost? Was there something internally that could be done uh, to bring that down? Because eventually the math just doesn't doesn't line up with what you're going to make. You over know, the course no of years. doubt about it. I want to say guilty as charged, not to be glib about it, but to take responsibility and ownership as a as a legal educator about having not done enough, even though in my time as dean and, and a number of deans here have done work, but we need to, to do more work. The problem is, not to get too pointy-headed about it, the inelasticity of demand, that in fact the students still come and take so much of this debt. And frankly, I worry about the uptick in law school applications, because with the recent uptick in law school applications, there's a tendency to say, tendency to say hey, everything's fine. All these students are willing to come and pay 50, 60, 70,000. But that misses the essential point. Crushing law school debt reduces opportunities. It puts the onus, not just on the law firms, but on the students to manage that, their careers, alongside an enormous amount of debt. So there is an all hands on deck 
strategy has to come about. Law schools need to be creative in figuring out how to finance their uh, high-level legal education with uh, more attention to student debt. Uh, the uh, law firms and legal organizations need to continue to support law schools in a variety of ways, including financially, to bring down that debt. And students need to be agile in working with lenders and, and, and working in their own. We have at our law school, and I think, frankly, the vast majority of law schools now essentially, for all intents and purposes, require you or prefer you to work between the time of college and law school, unlike when I was in law school. So even that is a small positive step to... First of all, making sure that students who come to law school understand what they're getting into. Uh, it doesn't become a default or a fallback. And second, actually maybe being able to accumulate resources and manage things so when they come to law school, they don't stare down the barrel of an extraordinary amount of, uh, of student debt. I think one of the issues is educating people about the nature of debt. Often, I've, I've often said many times that I think high schools could do a very good job at bringing that out. Like, here's a credit card debt. Here's that flat screen TV you want, and this is how much it costs if you buy it on credit. And I think similarly, you know, colleges can help students with that. And I realize you're dealing with 18-year-olds that are right out of their house yeah. and that, you know, uh, it's you, not. You know, let me jump in on that. It's, it's, it's a wonderful point. I had an alum, very, very prominent, wealthy alum in, in Chicago who came to me and said something like, if you could just have financial literacy right. as part of your curriculum. And he says, these folks are going to graduate and become lawyers in terms of compared to most of society, be wealthy, all of those, have those opportunities. But basic financial literacy is a very important and neglected skill. My first reaction, like legal educators, is, oh, we don't do that. We're going to, you know, we need to teach them the high, highfalutin stuff. But that's a powerful point. If we could figure that out, that would have, a, have an enormous impact on not the cost of legal education, but as much about how students think about manage, managing their debt and navigating their debt. And by the way, by the way, it would also put pressure on law schools because students can vote with their feet after all to make the kinds of adaptations and adjustments that will collectively bring down the overall cost of legal education. And I say that knowing that the occasional law professor of mine is, uh, you know, at Northwestern is going to hear this podcast and others, and they'll say, well, what about our, uh, the fact is uh, we can't build the great uh, American law school on the backs of our students and continue to basically put the costs on them. We have to do something about this. Well, just one last question for you, Dean Rodriguez. Uh, if our listeners want to reach out, learn a little bit more, how can they find you? Let me quickly say that one hat I wear is, is I have the privilege of serving as chair of the ABA Center for Innovation. And in connection with the sort of the innovation space generally, I'd encourage uh, them to reach out to me. Daniel, all lower cap, Daniel.Rodriguez at law.northwestern.edu. Number one. And number two, I hope your listeners will follow me on Twitter if they can. That's capital D, capital B, Rodriguez, five at et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd love to engage with you on social media. Well, you are a good uh, person to follow on Twitter. Thank you. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode, but I want to thank our guest, Dean Daniel B. Rodriguez from Northwestern Pritzker School of Law for joining us. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And if you like what you heard today, please make the time to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. Every bit helps. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Bye.